Uh, as a quick show of hands, how many of us have ever put together a piece of IKEA furniture or a piece of furniture at all in your life? Okay. Uh, how many of us have ever built a Lego set? Just another quick show of hands. Yeah, they come in all sorts, castles, ships, Star Wars, all of that. How many of us have ever followed a recipe? Yes. How many of us have ever done homework in school? Okay. Now, I would imagine that covers pretty much everyone, and if it doesn't, well, then be more active, I suppose. But we've all followed some sort of design in our life. We follow designs constantly. Uh, even if we aren't putting something, get, something together, we're using systems and things and ways that they were designed. Uh, we use the, how they were designed because that's generally the best way to accomplish what they were designed to accomplish. Today, I want us to understand one of the ways God's design for the church helps us to grow in the knowledge of truth. We'll look specifically at God's design for the qualifications of elders or overseers in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. So as you turn there, I want us to note three areas of qualification, three areas that I'm going to be highlighting from the text this morning. The first is that elders should have a proven reputation. The overseers should not behave like the world is the second. And the third is that elders or overseers should have consistent godly character. So we're going to look at all three of these this morning in the text. Let's begin by reading Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Version. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord, that you have given us your design for the church, Lord, that you have not just left us to, to guess on how to function, Lord, but you have given us your word and guidance in our lives. We thank you for that, Lord. Father, I thank you for each one here this morning. I pray that their hearts would be attentive to your word, Lord, that we would not be hearers of your word only, but doers also. Father, I pray for myself as I speak. Uh, may my words come out clearly so that you may be honored. Father, I thank you, and it's your name I pray. Amen. Before we dive into Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, I want us to note the major themes of Titus, so we have a bit of a context here. We can find them in verses 1 and 2. The first major theme is the faith of those chosen of God. Here he's talking about the faith. That which is common to all true believers. This is, also includes and envelops personal faith. So each one of us has faith if we are a Christian, but it, if our faith is not the same, then it is not the faith. So that's what he's, one of the major themes that he's going to highlight in Titus. The second major theme is the knowledge of the truth. In John 14.6, Jesus tells us that he is the truth. And in John 17.17, 17, Jesus is praying to the Father when he says this, Sanctify them in the truth. 
Your word is truth. What could be more important in our lives than to know and be sanctified in the truth? When that means being set apart to Christ and knowing Him in truth. Well, that's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is nothing could be better in our lives than to know Him in truth. The third major theme is godliness. This flows faith to the knowledge of the truth to godliness. And Paul is going to explain in further detail how God's design helps us all grow in godliness. Another major theme in Titus is the hope of eternal life. Godliness and the hope of eternal life points forward to Titus chapter 2, where Paul reminds Titus to call all kinds of people to lives of godliness and the truth. This is important because I want you to note, I'm talking about the qualifications for an elder or overseer today. But looking forward to Titus chapter 2, these characteristics might be the qualifications for an elder, but we should all strive for this. So if you're here this morning, you're like, I'm not going to be an elder, so I don't need to listen. You're wrong. These are qualifications for which we should all strive, at least some of them. And I'll, I'll tell you which ones not all of us should strive for soon. Um, so, now that we understand the major themes in Titus that Paul introduces in the first two verses, I want us to look more at God's design in churches. God's design. Now we're in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 says, For, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So first we see the design. Titus is tasked with appointing elders. The first thing I want us to note here is that the usage of the term elders and overseer, they're two different terms in the Greek, but they seem to be used interchangeably in this text. Um, If you're really looking at a split hairs, the elder is the position, whereas the overseer is the task. Um, But they're really used interchangeably. There's no transitional statements between them. Uh, some churches choose to only have deacons wanting to avoid the use of the term elder for one reason or another. Uh, I don't think that's the best because the term deacon is used in different ways in Scripture, more of a servant than elder or overseer. Uh, But because deacon is not mentioned in this passage, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time delineating the role of deacon as opposed to elder or overseer. Um, But in considering that, I want us to see the importance of following the design. What is the importance of Why have elders and not just be acceptable with anything we want? Well, what happens if I don't follow a recipe? I'm going to have some salty cookies. Or I'm going to have a flat cake. Or what happens if I choose to ignore one part of the instructions in in a manual? I'm like, ah, this part doesn't look too important. It'll be okay. Aren't you glad your car manufacturer didn't do that? Or in the typical male fashion, I don't need the instructions. And then three hours later, the wife is reading the instructions and trying to help the husband fix what he did wrong. Right? So what happens when we don't follow design? Well, it doesn't turn out the way the designer intended it to. See, God has given us a design for church leadership that we ought to follow. And Titus is tasked with appointing elders in every city. And the way that our cities and towns now function, this is really equivalent to establish elders in every church. So Titus is given a clear command to establish elders in every city. 
Now, much more could be said in the conversation for the need for elders or overseers, but I think it wise to move into the more important conversation on the qualifications of the leadership for a church. Don't get me wrong, they should be called elders or overseers, but more importantly is who they are. So let's look at the qualifications for an elder. Verses 6 and 7. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. I'm going to pause there and come back. So verses 6 and 7 give us the first set of requirements for elders in the church. They should be above reproach. The term that is repeated here is that the elder or overseer should be above reproach. This encompasses the other requirements that we're going to look at in this section. This means that the elder or overseer should have a proven reputation. I say proven reputation here because these are preliminary qualifications. So a man should not wait to begin living by these qualifications until he's an elder. You don't go drug dealer, elder, one day to the next, right? You go from a life of living godly. And a church likewise should not promote an unproven man. These are proven reputation. And truly, that's true of all of us. We should all be above reproach, right? No one's going to argue with that. But it's especially important for elders to be above reproach because they are God's steward. We're going to look at that more later. Now, the first requirement for elders is that they must be a male. The text says, If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife... This is the one qualification that not all of us in the room should strive for. Uh, Women, you're not supposed to be the husband of one wife or a male. You are created the way God intended for you to be created. You'll note, though, that there's no way for a woman to fit into this category. The world doesn't like that idea, do we? It's strange to the world. But God has given the position of primary spiritual authority and responsibility to man. Just as he has primary spiritual authority over us, the bride, the church. Our human relationships are symbols of Christ and the church. To stray here is to disregard God's design completely. Now, in having a proven reputation, he must be the husband of one wife. This should not necessarily be understood that he has to be a married man. After all, Paul advocates in 1 Corinthians for singleness if a person has that gift. But in his marriage or in his singleness is the man above reproach. Husband of one wife should really be understood as a one-woman man. This immediately made me think of Barney Fife from The Andy Griffith Show. Who here has seen The Andy Griffith Show? Yeah, Barney Fife is not what you would call a one-woman man, is he? Going from Juanita, lovely, dear Juanita, to Thelma Lou is kind of his girlfriend. He, he kind of moves around a lot. And apparently the Barney Fife actor, Don Knotts, even worse reputation for being a womanizer. Right, so it might make for entertaining television, but Barney Fife certainly wouldn't make a godly elder. He's not a one-woman man. Because being a one-woman man rules out any kind of sexual promiscuity. This doesn't necessarily rule out biblical remarriage, though. 
Texts such as 1 Timothy 5.14, Romans 7.1-2, and 1 Corinthians 7.39 teach us when remarriage can be appropriate, when a spouse has died. But remember that the point here is for him to be above reproach. In having a proven reputation, he also must be able to manage his children. The text gives us two criteria for an elder's children. His children should be faithful, and his children should not be accused of dissipation or rebellion. So in regards to the first criteria, uh, there's some debate on whether this means that the elder's children must be believers because of the term faithful, or whether it just, what, it, what does it mean? Uh, I take the position that it is not demanding that an elder's children should be believers, and I take that position for two reasons. The first is that no parent is sovereign over their children's election. God is sovereign, not the father, not a father. The father is sovereign, not this father. But I think there's stronger evidence for why this is not the case in this passage. When we look at the context, the stronger point here, it says immediately after writing that the children of an elder should be faithful. So he's just mentioned that they should be faithful. And then he mentions that they should not be accused of dissipation or rebellion. This indicates that what's being written about is the behavior of the elder's children, specifically in relation to the father's management. So I believe that faithful children should be understood as children who are faithful to their father, not rebellious. Whichever view you take, though, if you want to disagree with me, great. But whatever view you take, the importance remains the same. An elder should be able to manage what God has given him stewardship over. Again, our passage states that the elder must be above reproach as God's steward. So I told you I'd get to this, and I am getting it to it now. I'm circling back to this point because this seems to be a crucial segue into Paul's next qualification. Think about it this way. Why is having a proven reputation such a big deal? Because they are God's steward. They have been given God's possessions to manage as God would manage. What a hefty responsibility not to be entered into lightly. If a man is selected as an elder who is not above reproach, what kind of impact does that have on his ability to correct and train in righteousness? To help others grow in the knowledge of truth. In the last decade, and probably longer than that, but that's how long I've been paying attention, we've seen... Big-name pastors, famous pastors, men with a wide influence, well-known, large ministries who should be functioning as elders, and they fall into some truly awful examples of sinful lifestyles. We see this and we mourn, don't we? To say, how could they do this? We mourn because that man may have taught well, and he may have corrected others, and he might have trained them in righteousness, But now there's a shadow over all he did because of his not being above reproach. And in this, they are biblically disqualified from being any form of elder because they not only failed to be above reproach, but here's our second point. They also behaved like the world. Elders should not behave like the world. Starting at the beginning of verse 7 again. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. 
So this first one, not self-willed. Another way of translating this is to say that he's not overbearing. The idea here is that he's not reigning over the congregation in the way the leaders of the world would do. He's not leading with his own personal agenda. The other side, the positive side of this, it means that he should be a servant leader. He should be balancing the opinions and preferences of members of the church. And he should be open and eager to do God's will in leading the church rather than his own or anyone else in the churches. So that's what it means to be not self-willed. Not quick-tempered. I think we all pretty easily, more easily than we would like, understand what it means to be quick-tempered. Uh, but I came across a joke as I was preparing this sermon that I think illustrates the folly of quick-temperedness pretty well. The joke goes like this. It's pretty short, so hopefully I deliver it well. One day, a boy was riding in the car with his mother when he said, Mommy, can I ask you a question? His mom replied, Yes, honey, what is it? That's my best mom voice. Sorry, mothers. To which the boy asked, Why do all the idiots only come out when dad is driving? Clearly, this boy's father had a quick temper. An elder should not be so quick-tempered. But does this mean that a natural inclination towards this disqualifies? Do we not all feel that frustration at times when we drive? Do we not all get angry? Quick-temperedness is not the same as feelings of anger, but a quickness to give in to that anger. If I'm constantly in a fit of rage while driving, if my son's commentary would be that, I'm probably more quick-tempered than I should be. Because being quick-tempered is often self-centeredness. Why do I get angry so quickly? Because they're in my way. But elders, and really all of us, all Christians, are called to be Christ-centered, not self-centered. The world sees little wrong with this, don't they? With being quick-tempered. Unless they're opposing me, of course, then the world is going to be upset. But they like it when leaders are able to forcefully shut down an opponent. They wouldn't call it quick-temperedness. They'd call it quick-witted. But it's from a quick temper. The church shouldn't be functioning as the world. And the elders should not be like worldly leaders. Rather, overseers should be exemplifying Ephesians 4.32. They should be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. These are the marks of a godly leader. The next prohibition for elders is that they are to be not addicted to wine. This simply means that the elders should not be getting drunk. A prohibition placed on all believers, by the way. The world doesn't function like that, though, do they? No one in the world is going to say, yeah, that's great. Don't get drunk. Cool. I want you to note, though, that this doesn't place prohibition of all alcohol on elders. No one could be dogmatic against the consumption of alcohol from these verses because the word here is that it means given to much wine, a drunkard. So I said that controversial thing, and now I'll say it. Elders should still seriously consider whether drinking at all will leave them above reproach, or it will hurt anyone in the congregation. Note here again is this idea of self-control. Elders should not be controlled by wine, is the idea. They're also to be not pugnacious. 
Another quick show of hands. Who here has used the word pugnacious in an everyday sentence in the last month? Yeah, that's what I thought. I certainly hadn't. Uh, I had to look it up just to be sure I knew what it meant. It means an eagerness to quarrel. Elders should not only be not self-willed and not quick-tempered, but they should also not go out seeking a fight. The idea is that elders should not be bullies. That's worldliness. Elders should be ready to defend, not eager to quarrel. The next thing that elders should not be like the world in is not fond of sordid gain. This is the idea of being financially ethical. One commentary that I read suggested that this involved three areas of the elder's life. Reputably employed, so not a gangster or a swindler of any kind. I think that one kind of makes sense. He should be honest in matters of church finances. So elders shouldn't be dipping into church funds for personal gain. Again, I think that seems kind of obvious. And then the last way that this commentary mentioned should not use his position as an elder for financial gain. I found the last one most comical. Um, Can you imagine if any of the overseers in your church were bringing you meals because you've just had a baby or you've been sick or for whatever reason they've been ministering to you and then a couple weeks later you get an invoice in your mailbox for services rendered and you're like, okay, what are the overseers doing? Or if the overseers were collecting eldership maintenance dues for being taken care of by them. Like, oh, I prayed for you this morning. That'll be $5. Thank you. Right? The idea is comical, but this is important because elders should be unlike the world in that they are not controlled by money or any other desire. So these are all the ways in which the elders should be unlike the world and that they are not controlled by anything or anyone other than Christ. And now Paul gives us a third set of qualifications for elders. Elders should have consistent godly character. Starting in verse 8. So Paul has just said that they should not be these things, but be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance to the teaching. So I say consistent godly character because there is no way to be any of these just a little bit or a small portion of the time. The overseer should be all of these the majority of the time. I say majority because another quick show of hands, who among us is perfect? These characteristics are not necessarily dealing with potential sin issues, but issues of being like Christ. Elders are to be hospitable. This gives the idea of taking care of the needs of others. We tend to think of hospitality as having people in your home, inviting them over for meals. But hospitality also involves any other areas of care given to others. So if an elder brings you a meal, hospitality. Elders are to live in such a way that his service of hospitality is evident, not because of showiness, but because of his practice. Elders are also to be loving what is good. Uh, This seems glaringly obvious, right? Because we should all be loving what is good. But this one largely stands in contrast to some of the negatives previously stated. They should not be loving dishonest gain, alcohol, or power. They are to be loving what is good, what the Lord calls good. Elders are also to be sensible. This carries the idea of prudence, thoughtfulness, self-control. 
When you put these together and understand them together in the context of this verse, it seems that it means that the elder is to be controlled and thoughtful in his relationships with others and in himself. Elders are also to be just, the verses tell us. The elder is to be upright or fair. He's the the steward of God and must thereby lead as God leads with justice. Elders are to be devout. He should be dedicated to a life of holiness. A biblical elder or overseer should be consistent in holiness, not wavering in his faith. If he's constantly doubting whether Scripture is true or whether he is truly a believer, he should probably not be an overseer. Elders are also to be self-controlled. This is different than the word that was used for sensible, uh, which largely deals with thoughtfulness. Uh, This seems to be more the idea of discipline. Elders should live in such a way that they discipline their bodies. They live under control. I ran cross-country in high school. Uh, I ran just about every day. I normally rested on Sundays and was on a strict discipline of my body. I ate good food. I didn't drink soda. uh, And I was keeping my body fit. Why? Is it because I was crazy and I liked running three and a half miles? No. But it wasn't worth running at all if I wasn't going to do it right. That's the idea of self-control, being disciplined for godliness. An elder should be doing it right, going all of the way. And this last one here. Elders should be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. This is the final one and really seems to drive it home. If an elder is holding to the teachings of the Scripture, he is going to be fulfilling all of the above requirements. If he's not holding to the Scripture and not fulfilling those requirements, then he's not fit to be an overseer. Holding firm on the Word of God is a crucial requirement Because it leads right into the reason that Paul is giving all of these requirements. The reason why he is stressing the need for an elder or overseer. Starting in the middle of verse 9. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So why are these qualifications important? Because there is opposition. The elder, the overseer, needs to be able to exhort in sound doctrine because this is the standard by which we all should live our lives. The elders need to be able to refute those who contradict because there are those who go against sound doctrine and they are abundant. We're not going to look at them this morning, but verses 10 through 16 show us that there is a need for protection from false teachers. Not much has really changed in the last 2,000 years in that regard. We see this constantly in our world. We even see this in churches. People preaching against biblical doctrine from the pulpit. This should not be the case. Churches everywhere need godly leadership as part of God's design for growing in the knowledge of truth. So my, my main point in going over this this morning is that we should do two things in our lives because of these verses. The first is this. We all ought to seek to live to this standard. Paul is going to go on in Titus chapter 2 to exhort all kinds of people to live godly lives. What in your life would disqualify you from service to Christ? 
This applies whether you're male, female, rich, poor, pro-golfer, an accountant, whatever you are. What sin is preventing ministry in your life? Change what needs to be changed. The second thing we should do because of these verses is appreciate the elders and overseers we have. What a blessing they are from the Lord. Do we show our appreciation for their service? They're certainly not doing this for the human appreciation. Cliff didn't ask me to (laughs) tell you all to appreciate him. But we ought to be grateful to them and to God for their ministry in our lives. So do that today. Let me pray as I conclude. Father, I thank you once again for your word, Lord, for the teaching, the faith, and the knowledge of truth, Lord. I thank you. I pray that we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word, Lord, that we would seek to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that if there is one who does not know you here, Lord, that they would need to understand why we believe what we believe. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling with sin, Lord. I pray that you would help them to repent and turn from their sin and see your greater glory, Lord. That satisfaction is only found in you. Father, I pray for those that are doing well. I pray that you would keep them from pride that you would help us all to love one another. So it's in your name I pray. Amen.